Um, despite her uh, incredibly well and dramatic reading, this will still go down as one of the worst texts for Mother's Day you've ever heard in your life. <laughs> You're going to be sitting around with your family. And maybe your family goes to other churches and you're all going to start reminiscing. What did you hear about in church today? And some will be like, well, our pastor took some time to honor the mothers in the room and say how important that role is and how godly it is and how needed they are and everything. And someone's going to ask you, what did your pastor preach on? And you're going to say, oh, those two people that dropped dead because they didn't give all their tithe. Seems about appropriate. So we'll have to get into this a little bit. I do apologize. There are, of course, uh, unintended but still very powerful connections to the way that we honor mom in our text today. Uh, not for those that you might think. Some of you moms are like, I wish I had that power to strike that kind of fear in the hearts of the people that don't listen to me like my children. That it's like, you obey me or else, hmm, never know. So who knows? But honestly, this probably would fit in terms of its parallel, a little closer to Father's Day, because we will reference God as Father quite often in the text, because we are seeing in this text how God provides for his children. He protects them, he nourishes and feeds them, and so these things are very parental, except for the fact that God does it absolutely perfectly, as we who are parents here on this earth do not. God cares for his church deeply, and that is what I'm praying and hoping you pull from this very dramatic story today, is God's provision, his protection for, also referred in the scripture as his bride, so I'm sorry I'll be mixing some metaphor here, but, but because he loves the church so much, he will go to all lengths to protect her. He's going to protect us from all threats, both inside and out. He's going to provide for us in all circumstances, as we see in blessing and in persecution. And as we saw from our rereading of the text from last week, and as Jeremy had walked us through in that text, things were going so well for the church. Unity was happening. It was probably one of those experiences of like, it just seemed natural. What's going on with the brothers and sisters today? I wonder what's happening at the church today. And if you're going to work, your thoughts are just on all the things that God is doing in the midst. And there was no doubt this kind of swelling of movement and of anticipation of what the spirit was doing. Their unity was there. They were being multiplied in droves. And of course, they were providing for one another's needs. We saw in last week's text that there wasn't a needy person in their group, that they were because of their compassion, because of their alertness, because of their buying into the mission of what God was building, they saw the needs all around them. They said, oh, I've got something for that. Even if I have to sell my property in order to maintain or to provide for the uh, the needs of others, I will do that. And so that's leading into this groundswell of participation. And I think it's interesting. I heard some quote somewhere on the fly this week, and I thought it was really interesting. So I can't credit who said it, but... God deals in addition, he deals in subtraction, and he deals in multiplication, but he never deals in division. And what we are seeing in our text this morning is a threat of dividing the purity of the church. And so God is going to step in and deal with it. Yes, harshly, but very directly. Because this is what happens when things are going good. Our flesh gets in the way that we as people become people at the worst moments. God is doing this thing. We're witnessing it. We're excited about it. I don't think there's anything in the text to suggest that Ananias and Sapphira are not believers. So I'm going to get that kind of right out of the gate here. We won't dwell much on that. But they could very well have been swept up in a very good thing because at some point and at some way, their heart was invested in it. But as people do, they took it too far. This is the birth of the church that we're seeing explained in the book of Acts. This is a very special and unique moving of the spirit. They are growing in their fellowship. So we're seeing unity burgeoning in all these different facets and direction. But also, as this text is revealing, that the movement of the spirit can also bring judgment. And in this particular instance, even death. So the next time 
You hear somebody say, I don't know what's wrong with the church today. I just wish they'd go back to the miracles of Acts. Remember that this is one of them. I don't think any of us want to walk into a church on Sunday thinking that this is a potential outcome of, well, Dr. Barnhouse, a great theologian, said, if God acted in the same way today, you'd have a morgue in the basement of every church and a mortician on the pastoral staff. And I would add, you wouldn't even have a pastoral staff. So why does Luke put this story here? Yes, it happened, and it was probably in sequence, but we just heard about Barnabas. We just heard about the son of encouragement. We just saw this incredible example of someone who was striving towards an an aiding unity in the church through his generosity. He got his name changed because his reputation was so powerful, right? He was just plain old Joe before. Now he's Barnabas. He's the son of encouragement. And then right on the heels of that, we get introduced to Ananias and Sapphira. I think Barnabas is the prime example of that unity, while Ananias provides a prime example of the lengths that God will go to protect his church from infection, to protect its church from disunity. And this is relevant to us, not just because we're a church and we should care about this, but we just studied the book of Ephesians, which we said the entire theme was about the unification of the church of Jesus Christ. And so this stands out to us again in the worst Mother's Day text ever. It stands out to us as a very stark reminder at the lengths that God will go to continue in unity in his church. So the first of which we already stated was that God will protect his children from all threats. We've been seeing the threats from outside the church. The Sanhedrin is the most recent. Jesus, before the actual birth of the church that we saw here in Acts, Jesus, his greatest enemy was the Pharisees, and they stood opposed to him because why? He threatened their view of what the Messiah would really be. They anticipated the Messiah to come as a person. They longed for him. They taught about him. They wanted him to be the great conqueror and king that that would finally put Israel uh, on the map and they would be their own nation and all other nations would be afraid of them politically and, and, and financially and all of these other things. And yet Jesus came humbly, meekly, just blew up their whole model of what they were anticipating for Messiah. So they said, no, we don't want to get behind this one. The Sanhedrin then emerges as as somebody who is opposed to the church, but for different reasons, not because they're a threat to their view of Messiah. They weren't even looking for Messiah as a person. They thought they were in the Messianic age already, that God would establish the, the nation of Israel and they were going to accomplish it by forming an alliance with the Roman occupiers. The Sanhedrin saw themselves as politically savvy. They had themselves in a position of power because they kept the peace on both sides. Remember we said that they had sort of like a mob-like family in the high priest order because the Roman government knew, hey, we can trust these guys to do our thing and they know just how far to take it before it becomes our problem. There's a great little system working out. Everyone was scratching each other's backs and everything was safe. And then all of a sudden the church comes along with their radical ideas of revolution because the the one who was supposed to be dead, they're claiming has risen. And all of these people who were cowards before and they were running in fear like cockroaches when you flip the light on, now all of a sudden they're showing up in our face and taking us on boldly and standing up to us even so much so that we look at them and we go, oh, I know where this came from. They, they've been with Jesus. The Sanhedrin, made up of the Sadducees, had no time for this. Their theology didn't allow for it because they didn't believe in miracles and there certainly would be no raising from the dead. So they had formed and are forming as a a formidable opponent to the church. But Paul, I'm sorry, Peter is going to point out that even in the case of Ananias and Sapphira, the human instrument is not the ultimate weapon that we have to be afraid of or at least concerned about or strategize against. This is what, P, this is what Peter said in, in verse 3 of our text. Ananias, why has Satan filled your heart? Why has he led you to lie to the Holy Spirit and to keep back for yourself part of the proceeds of the land? 
There is a chief enemy at play. And again, if we're talking about the disruption to the unity of the church, we can always point it back to there is a chief enemy orchestrating all of this that we struggle with, all of these acts of disunity that we see. Fortunately for us, Jesus addressed this in John 10 in the great passage that talks about him being the shepherd and the one who protects his sheep. He says in verse 10, the thief comes only to steal and kill and destroy, but I've come that they might have life and have it abundantly. I'm the good shepherd and the shepherd lays down his life for the sheep. The, the indication that we have there is that the thief has come to only destroy. The enemy of our soul, Satan cares nothing about. He doesn't have, we've talked about this a couple weeks ago. He doesn't have that little let up, uh, 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 thing in his life or in his mind where he goes, Oh, I've, I've, I've bared down on them enough. He's not satisfied until you or I are in a grave. And the reason for that is because his ultimate enemy, God, gets glory by our growth, gets glory by our praise. And so if he can knock out the praisers, if he can knock out the growers, in his mind, he feels God gets less glory. We're just a pawn in his scheme. And so Jesus wisely points out to us to be on the alert, but also to trust in the strength and the protection of the good shepherd. Because behind every act of disunity in the church, Satan is rubbing his hands, wringing his hands, relishing in victory. And we are so easily taken up into the cause, even without knowing it. And because Satan failed with the Sanhedrin to attack the church from the outside, he's not done. They won't give up. He just stoked that flame enough to the, the pride of man will take over and they'll, they'll be coming up here in our text in a little while. That, uh, that they are not going to give up the attack and the opposition. But Satan is, he's got that ball moving. Now he's going to move inward and he's going to treat it like a cancer that's moving from the inside. And as I said, you and I are so easily swept up into his schemes. Why? Because yes, he's the great tempter. Yes, he, he works uh, night and day to draw us into those things. But if we're being honest, how hard does he really have to work? When we aren't armored up in the armor of God, when we aren't looking out for the, our spiritual blind spots and stuff, does he really have to work that hard to, to get us to at least contribute to his plan? It's a warning for us to be alert. Ananias and Sapphira are probably swept up in all the good things happening, completely blind to the fact that there would be little things in their flesh going, hey, we could use this to our advantage, you know. Yes, it's a good thing going on. And yes, you're accepted. You're part of the group. You're part of the club or whatever. But don't you think there's something you can get out of this too? I don't know when those whisperings began. We don't know exactly what their motivations were. We know what they did and we know what happened to them as a result of what they did. But it, it wouldn't take much imagination to think about it. If we put ourselves in their, uh, in their shoes, then we would probably think, okay, yeah, there's probably a couple of blind spots that I have. Even when things are going well, even when it seems like I have no reason to be playing with fire, I have a tendency to do that and to get myself in trouble. But it isn't just the attacks from without, it's the attacks from within that God is protecting us from. This is what our account says in verse 2. Ananias, with his wife's knowledge, he kept back for himself some of the proceeds and brought only a part of it and laid it at the apostles' feet. So, so what are they guilty of? Is it because they didn't give everything they had when they sold their property? They're guilty of misrepresenting their offering. There's nowhere in the text that it seems like anybody's freaked out about the amount. The only people concerned with the amount are Ananias and Sapphira. But what's going on here is an offering of insincerity. And so Peter isn't going to take that lightly. Peter being moved of the spirit is not going to take that lightly. So he says to them in verse four, well, while, while it remained unsold, didn't did it not remain your own? Like, wasn't this your property to do what you felt led to do with? And after it was sold, was it not at your disposal? Did, did the apostles come and say, hey, hey, we saw a for sale sign in the front. And then we saw that it said under contract. So we'll be expecting a pretty good kickback in the offering box later on. Why is it that you've contrived this deed in your heart? You've not lied to man, but to God. 
as a, a non-minor side note here, but a very important doctrinal one, here again we see the Holy Spirit is a person in the triune Godhead. And that his prominence or his, his, his role is being brought to prominence in this age, in this era of the church, so much so that Peter is saying, you haven't lied to us, you've lied to the Holy Spirit, you've lied to the one who's responsible for all the amazing miracles that you just witnessed. And so it was a warning, are you sure you want to fight him? He's the one that's caused us to speak in languages we didn't know. He's the one that's um, healing uh, the, the cripple at the gate. He's the one that's about to do some amazing things that are going to blow your mind. And yet you thought you could pull one over on him. And Jesus warned of inflating our sincerity for the purpose of being known or the purpose of being appreciated or acknowledged. He says this in Matthew 6. Beware of practicing your righteousness before other people in order to be seen by them. For then you will have no reward from your father who is in heaven. Then he goes on to explain to us some of the key areas in which we do this for manipulation. In verse 2, thus when you give to the needy, sound no trumpet before you as the hypocrites do in the synagogues and the streets, that they may be praised by others. Truly I say to you, they've received their reward. But when you give to the needy, don't let your left hand know what your right hand is doing so that your giving may be in secret and your father who sees in secret will reward you. Again, I would say, isn't that, is that not a temptation for us? We know when we've done something, we've gone the extra mile, we've been a little bit sacrificial or something. Is it not tempting to at least let somebody know? What if I did this whole thing and nobody noticed? Verse 5, and when you pray, you must not be like the hypocrites, for they love to stand and pray in the synagogues and at the street corners, that they may be seen by others. Truly, I say to you, they have received their reward. But when you pray, go into your room and shut the door and pray to your father who's in secret, and your father who sees in secret will reward you. I find it ironic that we are told so often by other Christians that they have a prayer closet. It may not be a literal closet, but it's a practice of this is how I get away in my time with the Lord. And part of that might be for discipleship and helping people understand that. But the whole point of the prayer closet in this text is that no one would know you're even doing it. Verse 16, he says, and when you fast, do not look gloomy like the hypocrites, for they disfigure their faces that their fasting might be seen by others. Truly, I say to you, they've received their reward. But when you fast, anoint your head and wash your face. In other words, don't let anybody know that you're doing this as a sacrifice to the Lord. Don't let it be obvious from your countenance and how you're dressed that your fasting may not be seen by others, but by your father who's in secret and your father who sees in secret will reward you. You wonder if, Maybe the reason why these two follow Barnabas in the storytelling is because maybe there's some insider knowledge, just a speculation on my part, that that little thing of like, boy, Barnabas is always the celebrated one. They gave him a new name. Did that get to Ananias? Did he say, maybe I could buy me some of that reputation? Maybe uh, they sold the land with all intentions of just saying, hey, we're giving this all. And maybe they said something about that. Hey, we just closed on the, on the property. So you guys can expect a pretty large donation. And then, yeah, I mean, we sold it for 25000 and stuff like that. But, you know, you know, just get the word around so that everybody knows what the value, what the, what the sacrifice is going to be. Maybe that was what was going on. But then once they got cash in hand... You don't have to nod your head or raise your hand to this, but if you've ever been like me, where you're like, I intend to do this, and then once you have all the resources, you're like, I don't think I can let go of it now. Maybe they were holding more money than they've ever had in their life, and they were thinking, is this really what we should have said we were going to do? Let's let's just not change the record. Let's tell them, keep keep the commitment alive. We'll just give a little bit less. That's all. If anybody finds out, here's our story. This is what our excuse is, something like that. The reality is, is that you and I will never do more with more. Don't we say that sometimes? If I just had more, I would give more. Or this is who I'd be if I didn't have these kind of concerns. If I didn't have this holding me back, I'd be such and such. You'll never do more with more until you've learned to do more with less. 
We hear it all the time. This is in particular about money, but we're really talking about things broader than money this morning. But we hear it all the time with money that that you will you will never practice in a fancy uh, you know in a in a in a fantasy kind of way. You'll never practice that which you're not doing right now. More will not allow for that to be easier. Their actions were that they misrepresented their offering, that they came in insincerity, and their punishment for that was immediate death. It seems like a severe reaction, does it not? We know that the church is birthed in an economy of grace and that there's forgiveness that's available to all because of the sin that Jesus just finished carrying to the cross and laid his life down. And then all of a sudden, it seems like the Old Testament God comes back. The one who's willing to just strike people out of the sky and shake the mountains and do all this kind of stuff. Is this is this such a severe reaction? Is this really necessary? Maybe Peter's a little full of himself because he was walking around the temple and he says, I'm going to heal you. And they were healed. And then he just went and kind of got his adrenaline all fired up because he's standing before the Sanhedrin and he's actually being bold for once. And he says, wow, this is actually coming together. Is Peter just drunk with power and he's getting a little full of himself? I don't think that's the case because he just, we were just hearing, I know it's not the case, but the reason why I think that is because he was just at the gate and we saw that the reason why there was even somebody healed wasn't because he went out and said, let's see if we can prove how powerful we are. It says he noticed the brokenness of the man at the gate. Peter was, was yes, in a flow, if you will. He's in a movement of the spirit, but it's leaning towards compassion and unity and building up in service. That guy in that kind of moment isn't going to all of a sudden start acting crazy with his power. So I don't think it's Peter jumping ahead. And then even then, how could he do it even if he wanted to? It's not like he had something in his fingers that could just make this happen. Is this a lack of grace? I think the reason why we see this and why it's been isolated for us and why Ananias and Sapphira were isolated for us and their punishment is set apart and the fact that we don't say that this can happen all the time and try to use this as a fear tactic just to get people to obey everything we ever command them is because Acts is the start of something. Acts is a unique era. The church is birthed. And you have to start things to set the tone. You have to lay the groundwork in ways that which will make the rest of it fall in line so that the, the emphasis is laid out before us. God has done this before. He moves his people into the promised land after slavery. And he delivers them. And then he says to Joshua as he's taking over from Moses, he says, you will be the leader into the promised land. And so he leads them in. And then they conquered Jericho. Things are going great. It's very similar to what we saw here in the building of the church. And then they go on to continue their campaign of defeating their enemies and taking over their territory and they lose. And and Joshua goes to the Lord and says, why are we losing? He says, you have sin in your camp. And they trace it down to a man named Achan who even though God had told them, as you conquer this land, don't go and take the spoil. Don't bring it back to your camp. Achan was like, but it was really nice stuff. I couldn't help it. And he had some tucked away in his tent and the Lord caused them to lose because he was covering it up. And so the Lord exposes that to Joshua and says, because you've got this amount of sin, the entire camp is defeated. So God has to deal severely with that. Why? Because something new is about to begin. The tone needs to be set. The example needs to play out so that people understand that this is serious business. And Achan, like Ananias, drops dead. There's a severe action at the start, which emphasizes God's values and expectations as you're raising children. Here's my connection to Mother's Day. As you're raising your children, you are wise to start with discipline and structure right out of the gate early on in wisdom and with counsel and all those kinds of things. But if you say they're just going to grow out of whatever it is that they're 
demonstrating that there's a certain age that they'll hit, that they'll just figure it out. Some of that might get a little bit easier, but for the most part, if you don't start the process setting the tone, it's really hard to go back and undo all those years that you lost the opportunity to. It's the same principle playing out. God is giving birth to something. And so he's exposing to us what he really cares about, where his values are, what his expectations are of the church. He says that we are to be worshiping with spiritual integrity. Don't misrepresent your faith. We don't have to overinflate who we are or how dedicated we are because it's not about us to begin with. Sometimes we go too far in the opposite direction and we sound to others like we don't know anything or I'm so terrible at this Christianity thing and we downplay the fact that the Lord has grown us through some things and there are some things that we know. Or we say this is often what we run into is we're working with our men and saying, hey, you need to be a mentor to other guys and stuff. And that applies to all, but just in particular, sometimes we have to get that message across to our men differently. And they often say, I have nothing to offer. I don't know as much Bible as that guy, or I haven't been in church as long as that guy or anything. We talk ourselves out of, we misrepresent the fact that God has brought us to a place and that he has invested in us, that he has grown us up and matured us to some extent. So somewhere in this life needs to be the tension of knowing I am not anywhere near where I want to be with the Lord, but I certainly am not the same person I was when he first called me by his grace. That's what spiritual integrity looks like. These guys were walking in and saying, I want you to think that we are the most sacrificial, that we are like Barnabas juniors and we're ready to do this thing for God's cause. They were lying so that others would, un, would, would anticipate that they were more godly than they were. God says no to engage in humble sacrifice because it isn't about our grand gestures. I am so glad and, and have worked hard to not know what any of you give to this church. It doesn't matter to me. It honestly doesn't. There are plenty of areas in my life that I am tempted, and that is not one of them. This whole idea about the money thing and all that sort of stuff, it really does. Uh, the Lord works it out. He grows. He's always provided for our needs. I believe it needs to be taught. Yes, we're going to talk about it here in a few minutes. But honestly, this idea of telling somebody, especially in my position, because you think that somehow I would be more impressed by the size of the gift, it just doesn't work. That doesn't happen hardly ever here, and I'm thankful for that. That our givers here at Faith are engaging in humble sacrifice, not relying on grand gestures or advertisements of all the good that they're doing or trying to do. God says that we are to engage in quiet trust, not to over-manipulate the circumstances because this is God's multiplication. This isn't based on our efforts. So these things are being all exposed to us as God is dealing with the church in a very severe and disciplinary manner. And there's good crossover for us. We need to not be shy of discipline. Here's my other connection to Mother's Day. My mother disciplined me, all 97 pounds of her. And she would, she would, all right, so mom, you can't watch this. Turn off the, the feed. I, I was spanked as a child. I know you probably think not enough. I understand. And it's and the statute of limitations is worn out, so if you want to try to report my mother, you can't. And she's already fled the state anyway, so. But my mom, she's, you know, this big and everything, and, and we we now love to laugh about this because as she was dealing with her discipline, she would explain to me, what I was doing wrong. And it would sound like you cannot do this again. And if you ever, then you, you know, it was just like, it's like, I think that's where I got my musical rhythm from and everything. I don't, you know, she's really going to be done with me now that I've admitted that it was the cutest thing anyway. So the church cannot shy away from the responsibility of dealing with sin. Why? Because we see God dealing with it. We have to evaluate all the, the ways in which God did and then ask him for humble guidance. Lord, what is the correct way to intervene? What is the grace, gracious way of helping people with their sin? But um, Mark Devers in his book that I've referred to quite a bit, Nine Marks of a Healthy Church, gives us several good reasons. And I feel like if I just passed over this, because what we're seeing is the most extreme version of church discipline happening right before our eyes. 
So let's talk about the, the more common one, the thing that, that we would be expected to engage in as a church. That church discipline, the reason we would do it would be for the good of all uh, individuals, all of those involved. That we would engage in interfering with sinful behavior for the good of the person who is perpetrating the sin so that they don't continue to make their lives worse and, and to continue to offend God, but also for those who might have been the recipients of that sin. When churches turn a blind eye to bad behavior, not only are they not doing a service for the person who is tripping over themselves and, and, and dangling a foot over the fires of hell, but we are also not standing up for those people who have been hurt by the actions of the offender. I think it's interesting that Ananias' name means God is gracious. And if we just limited God's grace to what he did with Ananias, we'd say, that doesn't look like a lot of grace. It looks like a lot of judgment. But God is gracious to everybody involved when he deals with sin. It would have been far better for Ananias to have lived out his name to show the graciousness of God, but instead God demonstrated it with him. Also that we would do church discipline for the good of the believers because this is an example and a warning to us. When I see somebody else struggling with their mistakes and their issues and when they've sinned and then they've paid the price for that, it is a warning to me, don't follow in their footsteps. We do this for the health of the church. The, a little yeast leavens the whole loaf is what we hear in the scriptures. And when we allow for these things, just be dismissed. I'm not saying we go around and try to figure out because all of us would have plenty of things to put on our list. Oh, yeah, if you're looking for sin, this is what I did yesterday. This is what I did three days ago, all this kind of stuff. This isn't a witch hunt. This isn't that we go out and look for those kinds of things. But as people bring it to the surface, as it starts to become a thing of confession or it starts to become a thing of offense that can no longer be ignored or, or if we turn a blind eye to it, we are not helping the health of the church just like we saw with the sin of Achan with the children of Israel under Joshua's leadership. But this is also for the corporate witness of the church. Ironically, Sapphira's name is translated beautiful. Her actions were not. Is it possible, though, because of God's ownership of his church, because of his dealing with an infection, with his dealing with the consequences that could be disastrous results for the church? Is it possible that God's glory is made beautiful by his actions toward her? This is something that the church should cherish is our reputation with all of those around, not because we're trying to win their approval, but because we want them to see how good God really is, how great he is, how, how much he's forgiven us of, how powerful he is in our lives. And then also it's recommended that we, we do this practice for the glory of God because we reflect his holiness. All of this to say is that God will pr protect his children from all threats against them, both inside and out. Secondly, God will provide for his children in all circumstances. He's going to do this through the pruning that happens as, remember, God deals in subtraction, but not division. So in subtraction, what is pruning? It's taking out the decay, cutting off the things that are no longer good for life, or maybe pulling away from the nutrients that the other more healthy branches are, are needing. Good, good growth comes from careful pruning. And again, this example of Ananias and Sapphira is an extreme portrayal of it, but it is an act of pruning by the Lord. Make no mistake. Jesus continuing to explain all the things that he is that fulfills our need. He says in John 15, I am the true vine and my father is the vine dresser. Each branch of me that does not bear fruit, he takes away. And every branch that he do, that does bear fruit, he prunes that it may bear more fruit. And this is why I said I don't have a problem applying this to Ananias and Sapphira as potentially believers who were maybe caught up and then let their flesh and their sin create a wicked scheme as a tool of Satan. But God the Father is a pruner. He is a vine dresser. 
And so we have to understand that that is a part of his provision is that he will cut away the things that decay or that take the life away from the health of the whole organism. He will provide for us through pruning and he will provide for us through power. This is amazing. In verse 12 of our text, many signs and wonders were regularly done among the people by the hands of the apostles. And they were all together in Solomon's portico. None of the rest dared join them. I don't know exactly who the rest are. There's some speculation that it could be none of the rest of the outsiders dared just kind of like showing up and hanging out with their club because they were a little intimidated by all the stories they're hearing and the powerful things that are happening. Or it could be that, you know, some of the people were having a hard time. They wanted to join, but they really felt like they needed an invite and everything. I don't know. I think it's really the former. I think that the outsiders were hearing the reports and seeing the power of the Lord, and they weren't treating it casually. They weren't just treating it as some form of street entertainment that they could go and check out. It was getting to the point where they might have been thinking, this is a little dangerous. If we get too close to this, we don't know what's going on. So I think it's incredible that you see this, that none of the rest dared join them, but the people held them in high esteem. But juxtaposition of this in verse 14, more than ever, believers were added to the Lord. Multitudes of both men and women. And he goes on to explain all this momentum. And we're thinking to ourselves going, wait a second, they should be fleeing for their lives after seeing this demonstration of punishment. That they would be looking at it and saying, well, I'm not going to go serve this judgmental God. How is it that the reaction could be, hey, these guys have something going on. And they're willing to join. They're willing to surrender. On, on the surface, I think it's interesting that God is answering the prayers that the apostles prayed in chapter 4. Remember, they, had, they were confronted and they were being persecuted by the Sanhedrin. And they, they, they left there rather than saying, okay, I guess we can't do this anymore. They left saying, Lord, continue to do great and powerful things. And when people keep calling us on the carpet for doing it, give us the boldness to speak truthfully about you. God is answering their prayers. He's saying, I'm not done with you yet. Ananias and Sapphira are not throwing us off our course. We're going to keep moving and it will still work so that others will be drawn. I think there's a, a principle here for us to see and we can trace this from the beginning of the Bible all the way through. Is that God does attract others to him. There is a there is an aspect of the things that God does. And we forget this because we hear all the negative of who God is. And he's the scary one. And everyone's like, I can't believe in that God. He allows people to suffer and everything. God does attract people to him all the time. But he doesn't do it in ways that just tickle the ears or, or, or surprise the eyes. He does it through distinction and care for his own. I don't have all of my theology tight on this, but as I look at all of the rules and the details in the Old Testament, wear this color, not this color, eat this animal, not this animal and everything. I'm just like, you know, at some point, maybe God's going to explain every reason for every little detail, but he does explain the reason why you as my children, as a nation are going to go through all of these hoops is so that other people on the outside go, they must belong to somebody. It just recalls in mind, I probably shouldn't mention this because it's so irrelevant, but anybody ever seen Wallace and Gromit, the claymation shows? There's this one episode, and this is like 20-something years ago now. We used to watch it with our kids. And Gromit is the, is the, is the guy's dog. He's an inventor, and, his, and Gromit is just this dog who's really a part of the, he's, you know, he's got human characteristics and all that stuff. Well, it's, it's his birthday. It's the dog's birthday, so his owner gets him a collar. And Gromit is this highly intelligent, very advanced dog who does not need a collar. And, and, and Wallace says, he puts it on, he goes, there, that a boy. Now it looks like somebody owns you now. And I just think about this, that there's, there's a part of ownership. There's a part of belonging to, like I said, it's a terrible example of what we're talking about here. But God has created this, this jealousy, if you will, to the outsider looking in that says, oh, wait a second, you mean someone cares about those people that much to have that kind of protection over them, to have that much in interest and invitation in their life? I remember being in sixth grade and I, have, I had a couple of buddies that I was always with. 
And we all had varying degrees of like family backgrounds and stuff. One of my friends um, was from, uh, you know, a two-parent home, uh, as I was as well. But his parents were extremely erratic, chaotic, and strict on their children. Because when you're unhappy in life and you can't control your circumstances, who do you take it out on? You take it on the weak ones in the family and stuff. And this kid always seemed to be the brunt of his parents' um, anger and all this kind of stuff. And then my other friend didn't seem to get any anger or any discipline or anything expressed from his single mom. You know, she probably was overwhelmed by the prospect of caring for him and stuff. And she gave in to some of the, you know, the complaints and the, I want more of this and I want to, and we just felt like this kid never got in trouble, never had any direction and all that sort of stuff. He was a nice enough kid. We enjoyed hanging out with him, but we could tell he was the spoiled one out of the three of us. Well, for for about a few weeks, we, we kept fighting with one another. I felt like I was a little bit in the middle of this. I don't remember all the circumstances, but these two guys especially were just button heads, and somehow it landed on the leadership of the school. They called us in, and I don't know if it was just getting out of control or if it was disrupting classes or what. The three of us came in, and the principal was there, and he's basically like, okay, guys, what's going on? Sort this out for me. You guys have always been best friends and everything. Where is this all going and what's going on? And and then to my surprise, the, the kid that was in the house that was overly strict and overly chaotic and everything, he was just pointing at the other kid and he says, every day after school, I can't go hang out with you guys. I can't because I got to go home and do the dishes and then I got to do the laundry now, but you don't have to do it. He's just literally just lambasting this kid for not having his life. And, you know, as a part of that, I was like, yeah, they are from two different worlds, you know. Then the other kid, when he got a chance to speak, he wasn't fighting back. He was just kind of blown away. He's like, man, I didn't know he hated me that much because of something I can't control and stuff. And So the other kid said, well, you know, I, I just, you know, every day I can just say I want this. I want 10 bucks to go to the arcade. I just want this. I want that and everything. He goes, all I ever get is dismissed. I get sent away. And he said, he goes, you've got parents that want you around because they need you. I have no idea if my mom needs me around for anything. And he said this. He was the cool kid. All the girls liked him. He said this through two handfuls of tears. His heart was breaking because he had no structure and no discipline. It was almost like nobody owned him, to use a very crude phrase. God has given us distinction because he cares about us. He he gives us these these high expectations or these lofty uh, regulations, if you will. I don't mean that we're living in the law, but he gives us these things because, yes, they provide for us, they make our lives better, but others might go, you mean he cares about you enough to expect things from you? This is the power that is showing up in the Holy Spirit is that God is giving us distinction. He's making us unique as he grows us up. And a church is blessed when it embraces her distinction from a suffering culture, one who doesn't think they belong to anybody. So what we're really seeing here with this deception and this really harsh reaction to the deception of Ananias and Sapphira is, is that our giving, our faith, our sacrifice, our efforts towards the Lord need to be done honestly, with sincerity. When, when God's children give back to the Lord, what we're really demonstrating is that we trust in God's provision. What our act of giving, you can say financially, our time, our, our commitment to living the life that he's spelled out for his kingdom, all of those things, as we do that in reaction, we're trusting in God's provision. If I do things his way, he said, he'll take care of me. It also demonstrates that we have an investment in his mission because his kingdom is coming to earth. It is being revealed over and over and over again. We are walking in his kingdom that we're saying, I am stepping in that kingdom more than the one of my own. It shows us that it shows us and the Lord and others that we are practicing a disconnection from this earthly, this dying, this wayward and hopeless kingdom. So on, on the converse, when we lie about our giving, when we lie about our efforts, when we lie about our faith, or we show it off, or we even flat out refuse to change or to sacrifice, we're demonstrating that our need, that our need is to be seen as something that we are not. That instead of God being our protector, we're our self-protectors, which always fails. We also demonstrate that our focus is on the mission of 
self-preservation rather than buy into what the Lord is doing and where he's leading. That form of self-provision, which we know we can't keep up. Let me just say this about financial giving here as we are wrapping up. Our giving needs to be motivated, must be, is godly motivated by the heart. There's always a debate going on in the church and amongst leaders and pastors and elders and things. Do we teach that that the tithe, which means 10% of our income, is still relevant to, to, to today? Do we explain that as an expectation? We believe, I believe, uh, that, that this is taught as a principle in the age of the church. It wasn't an option for Old Testament saints. It wasn't an option for those that were a part of a system where that was a requirement. But now it needs to be taught as a principle. The reason why I believe this is because the heart is capable of giving our 10% faithfully and regularly and still not honor God in the process. Ananias and Sapphira proved they can still say it was probably still a lot, just wasn't all of it. It wasn't all that they said they were going to do. There's a part of us that when we, when we see things in terms of percentage or plateaus or levels, when we hit it, we rest. We back off and we say, the Lord's got enough of that. So it becomes a heart matter, no matter how we slice it. If you believe that 10% is the bare minimum requirement for all Christians or whether you think it's not spelled out in percentage, we have to be careful that it always remains a matter of the heart. Does Jesus have more of us? For some, that can't always be more money, even though their desire is to do so. But he does require an aid to get more of us. That's part of our growth. And our giving needs to be motivated by the principle, which is tithe, yes, is an effective way to fund the mission and live in thankfulness. If any church had all of its people giving that 10%, the things that they could do with their bank accounts and everything and the mission and the staffing and all that sort of stuff, yes, it would be answered. But that isn't what most churches experience. And yet God's blessing can still be on it. He doesn't turn his back on those who are not meeting that requirement. But it is an effective way to fund mission. It's also a thankful way to view God. He is a God who says, live on 90%. I'm only asking for this little sliver. But there's a reminder in all of this that we are growing in that economy of grace. Why would I say, if you say, well, I'm getting better as a husband or a wife, or I'm growing as a parent, or I'm starting to figure out how to give my work to the Lord, but I'm really not great at it yet and everything. Why would I expect that you could all of a sudden figure out how to do 10% of that perfectly without any hesitations, hiccups, or hangups? We grow in this area. We grow towards whatever goals the Lord has put in our hearts. And he takes the little that we offer and he multiplies it and makes it something amazing. Paul says in 2 Corinthians 9, the point is this. Whoever sows sparingly will also reap sparingly. And whoever sows bountifully will also reap bountifully. Each one must give as he has decided in his heart, not reluctantly or under compulsion, for God loves a cheerful giver. And God is able to make all grace abound to you so that having all sufficiency in all things at all times, you may abound in every good work. We grow in our giving like we grow in everything else. What is God's requirement? That we stay attached to him, we follow his leading, and don't misrepresent our spiritual growth or show off our sacrifice. Or we don't hide from the fact that we aren't as good as we could be, should be, or want to be. Because Jesus carried our shame, we can stand in honesty as we grow more faithful in Christ. It's okay and better that we aren't put together this side of eternity. Because it shows who really is in our lives. It shows the strength and the perfection and the power of Jesus. If Ananias and Sapphira had just realized, wait, wait, we're in this growing community and we've come up short with what we thought we could do, or we were really tempted to show up on Giving Sunday and give you less than what we talked about before, instead of just pulling people aside and saying, look, we're having a real struggle here. 
we thought we could do this. We really don't. Don't we think that Peter and others would have said, well, let's pray about this. Let's come to a conclusion that we believe honors the Lord because it's not about the amount. Thank you for your honesty. Thank you for letting us know that you are struggling with this. Don't you think that that would have been a far better outcome? Followers of Christ are to live in transparency. There's no need to misrepresent our walk. It lessens God's glory because it takes the spotlight away from him. And it doesn't accomplish anything because it isn't a work of the spirit or of power. We think we can make it about us. So the principles that we remember this morning is that God cares about his church so much that he died for her. He will protect her from anyone or anything. Yes, in different ways. We are not preaching that the miracles of Acts are exactly trans, uh, transferable to the, to the times that we're in today. That isn't really the point. And we also have to understand that God nourishes his church by cutting away the decay that threatens her health. And he infuses that living plant with his power. So let's trust the Lord to be enough for us. Let's not compete with his provision. Let's not test his protection. He longs to care for his children. I have no idea what that has to do with Mother's Day. I I think there's characteristics there for sure. Um, I think there's the desire of a good parent to want to provide for their children. And sometimes we need to just remember as we long for these things for our own kids, that's how God sees us. He's not hoping to catch us doing bad things. He's not hoping to strike us dead just as soon as we mess up. He wants us to live and he wants us to live in him and live abundantly. We do it under his protection and we do it with his provision. Would you please stand? Let's close our time in prayer. Lord, thank you for being faithful to us. Lord, thank you for being even more faithful than our human parents, even the best parents that we could shout and praise from the rooftops today. Still pale in comparison to your consistency, your generosity, your strength, and your wisdom. Help us to trust you like a loving father. And help us, Lord, to lean not on our own understanding, on our own uh, sacrifices, on our own provisions, but to trust in yours. Thank you for being so good to us. It's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen.